So th- there's this story that Pac-12 fans should definitely understand, but also know that it's not that big of a deal. Our Locked On Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Lockdown Pack 12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Lockdown Podcast Network, your team every day, and your number one source to stay up to date with our media rights free and beloved Conference of Champions. Like, comment, subscribe, please, and thank you wherever you listen to or watch this show. I thank all of you out there who helped us get to 2,500 subs on the youtube channel appreciate all of you and hundreds more subscribed listening on podcasts as well so this question came in about something that is definitely newsworthy but also once you kind of dive into the weeds as i'm going to do here you realize is really not all that big of a of a deal so this question came from mc I'm disappointed you didn't have hammer at the end of your name. But if you want a question answered about expansion, about a team, about a player, anything, YouTube comments or on Twitter at smalls underscore 55 or LO underscore pack 12 are the handles over there. DMs and mentions wide open. So for those of you who don't know this particular story, there's there's been a lot of reporting. John Wilner's done a good job kind of laying this out, as I will attempt to do so here as well about Comcast basically overpaying for the Pac-12 network for for many, many years. So first thing to understand here is these negotiations about dollar figures, ad revenue, viewership, it all gets very, very complex. And I have uh, spent some serious time diving into this. This question came in several days ago, uh, but I wanted to make sure that I got it right and could explain it to you as simply and plainly as as possible. So the Pac-12 network, when it was launched back in 2000, was 11 or 12, was, was a revolutionary idea that didn't get executed well in practice because it limited the visibility by not being on DirecTV. But the idea in theory was intriguing, right? The Pac-12 owned the network rather than ESPN or Fox or CBS, you know, owning a portion of it and getting some of the revenue from it. Um, but, you know, also operating it and giving you that uh, that kind of brand to attach to. The Pac-12 was going to be its own thing. It was going to be its own cable channel, right? And on Xfinity, that's where you see it, is you scroll through and it's there just like ESPN, just like Fox. The Pac-12 network is a channel if it's on Xfinity or Sling or wherever. So one of the partners that the Pac-12, that the Pac-12 network has had for a long time is Xfinity, which is owned by Comcast. So these calculations get made with regards to what the viewership is and how much you know ad revenue gets gets charged and how much you know they pay and all this sort of stuff. And a lot of it kind of gets backlogged to an extent, as in you you show an event, but then to gather the actual numbers and hard data and information about what the viewership numbers were, what demographics you hit, how valuable the ad dollars are, all this sort of stuff, that gets kind of calculated at a later point in time. So what happened was 
the Pac-12 conference, and again, just to be very clear here, because I know that George Klyovkov is public enemy number one to some of you, at least on YouTube, this was a Larry Scott ordeal that George Klyovkov, once again, is now having to clean up. So the Pac-12, way back when, thought that Comcast was shorting them on the payments that they owed based on the viewership and demographics and whatnot, and they thought that they were being shorted on those particular payments. So the two sides did not see this issue the same way, and the Pac-12 initiated it. It was Larry Scott in the front office, and by the way, people were fired, and there are wrongful termination suits, and there's all this stuff, right? No, more negative press to the Pac-12 conference and chaos, right? This sort of stuff is important to understand, but again, as I said, a tad overblown, but worth addressing, uh, and it's it's honestly kind of fascinating, at least in my view. So the Pac-12 thought Comcast was shorting them on their payments, so the Pac-12 goes out and hires an auditing firm. And then the auditing firm comes in as a neutral third party to assess the situation. And they determine, not to the Pac-12's liking, by the way, much to their dislike, that Comcast had been overpaying the Pac-12 network by $5 million a year for about 10 years. And that money was going to the network, gets partially distributed to the, the member institutions and whatnot. So the Pac-12 basically said, no, we don't like the result. You know, I teacher, I think you are wrong in how you have determined that I solved this math problem incorrectly. I'm going to go get the AI machine and I'm going to have AI do it for me. And then the AI spit out the same result as the teacher. And then the student doubled down and said, nope, the AI machine is wrong. We're right. It's not particularly clear why the Pac-12 thought that they were being underpaid when in fact it appeared they were being overpaid. That gap has never been clearly established. But the Pac-12 disagreed with the audit firm. And then at that point in time, the conference did not relay said information to the presidents. So the Pac-12 network president and CFO were fired. They're the ones now suing for wrongful termination because they think that Larry Scott was told that Comcast was actually overpaying and that money was owed back to Comcast and that Larry Scott chose not to disclose the information to the presidents, and that's created a whole sticky situation and whatnot. So once the Pac-12, which by the way, it's unclear whether or not Comcast would have found out about all of this if the Pac-12 hadn't thought initially that they were being underpaid, but so Comcast then did their own audit of the numbers and whatnot and saw that there were overpayments over a 10-year span and basically what Comcast wants to do now is they want to take it off as a credit for what they are going to pay the Pac-12 network over the next two years. This being, I believe, in 2022 and 2023 or for those sports seasons. You know, like I said, this stuff can get uh, delayed and, and behind and whatnot. So Comcast did their own audit, saw the overpayments, and now they're saying, hey, we overpaid by $50 million. And that sounds like a lot. 
And at some level it is, right? It was $5 million a year. They were apparently paying too much for the Pac-12 network for 10 years. That's how you get the $50 million. That sounds like a lot. And then it puts the Pac-12 and its schools in a really precarious situation. I will tell you why it does not after I tell you why Built Bars are delicious. This, this whole situation, not particularly tenable. Eating a Built Bar as a healthy, tasty snack, completely reasonable. Because if you want a delicious snack, but you don't want all the sugar and calories, you need the best tasting protein bar ever. Built, you've got to try Built Bars. They're healthy, taste amazing. They're covered in 100% real chocolate. It is superb. So are all the flavors they've got. Churro, peanut butter, brownie, cookies and cream, mint brownie, my personal favorite. They have got everything except a lot of sugar and a lot of calories. 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, a whopping 17 grams of protein. I always have them in my cupboard, in my pantry, that is, and I've always got them in my golf bag for a reason. Don't miss your chance to get your next order of Built Bars at Walmart or Sam's Club. You can also get specialty flavors at Built.com. If you're close to Sam's Club, run in, grab a 13-bar box with hit flavors, brownie batter puff and churro puff. I've had both. They're outstanding. You can thank me later once you do that. All righty, so. Now we're in the resolution phase of these Comcast overpayments. And this is just like the whole thing is so it's so very Larry Scott Pac-12 to start something where you think, hey, we're going to get more money out of this. And at the end of the day, somebody else down the line is going to end up paying more money in the opposite direction. It's it's all too classic. It's, it's a tale as old as time. It is the literal manifestation of a classic cartoon scene. In I saw it a lot in Tom and Jerry as a kid. You're running around metaphorically with your hair on fire. There's a garden rake. You don't see it. You step on it. And it comes up and it whacks you in the forehead. That's what we're seeing here. It's, it's like it's kind of hilarious at some level, but this is not going to be a huge deal. Here's why $50 million over two years. The payments are expected to be made back to Comcast or they're they're going to, you know, take them off as a credit and not pay as much to the Pac-12 over over the next two years. So we're talking about twenty five million dollars a year. That is not going to be distributed to the universities, which sounds like a lot of money until you realize that that's getting evenly split 12 ways, right? That money does split 12 ways. Unlike Tess in Ocean's Eleven, who does not split 11 ways, that money is like you have to think about it on a per school basis. You're talking about over the next two years, the Pac 12, each Pac 12 school is going to get about $2 million less than they otherwise would have, right? It's not the schools paying the $2 million. It's they would have gotten more, but then they kind of already got more. So if you think that this is something that is emblematic of the Pac-12 being 
a disaster and it's terrible and oh my gosh the finance is going to go crazy this is kind of the, the the point that I'll that I'll wrap up here by making this which is my big takeaway on it this is not a consequential amount of money i know the pac12 is way behind the big 10 and the sec financially but 2 million dollars per year per school i have the big bold dramatic opinion here it's not going to move the needle and the reason I know that, or part of the reason I know that, is when those overpayments were coming in, and over time, these millions of dollars were accumulated falsely by schools that wouldn't or that shouldn't have necessarily been coming into them. Did it seem like the Pac-12 was on the verge of closing the financial gap? No. So when that money then has to go back in the other direction, or rather not come into your school to begin with, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's not the biggest deal in the world. So, MC, thank you for the question. Worth addressing. Uh, a really interesting topic and, and something I legitimately enjoy diving into on the media rights front. And um, I, I just, there were so many things Larry Scott didn't do right. And and th- this is this is like the whipped cream on top of the Sunday, man. It's you, you already saw the foundation, you know, with the Pac-12 network not getting on direct TV. Giant fail. Just epic, giant fail in that sense. Many other missteps along the way. Didn't fight a really good PR battle to, you know, top it all off. But that whipped cream on top of the Sunday is, is this whole entire debacle. And I saw there were reports of Larry Scott potentially having to testify in the wrongful termination suit. I, I, if, if that happens, I have not confirmed whether or not that's happening. If that happens, I need courtroom footage. I, I need Larry Scott to get on the, get on the stand and just be absolutely grilled about that and 50 other decisions that were made over this, uh, this period of time. So hopefully that explains things uh, simply and, and, and thoroughly. If you got a question about something else, by all means, YouTube comments or on Twitter at Smalls underscore 55 or at LO underscore Pac-12 about that or anything else. Uh, drop me a question. Always happy to answer it here on the show. So uh, let's uh, switch to more football stuff. So the NFL draft was last week, and I love the draft. I mean, it's it's hope. It's optimism, right? It's National Signing Day's got more craziness now because you just have more teams that are involved, of course. You've got dozens and dozens of teams uh, that are that are interesting in the NFL. You have like eh, you know twenty, uh, and the other twelve are just kind of like eh, they're just kind of there. You know, like the Raiders. The Raiders are just eh, they're just kind of there. So there were three Pac-12 players taken in the first round. None of them in the top ten. None of them even in the top fifteen, which was a surprise. Christian Gonzalez stock was rising up. The former Oregon Duck and Colorado Buffalo. And then he fell all the way to number 17 to the New England Patriots. The other first round picks, Dalton Kincaid to the Buffalo Bills. I I love that one. You know who Dalton Kincaid's going to be? I'll touch on that in a moment. Jordan Addison goes to the Vikings at 24, part of four straight receivers taken in uh, the, the, the first round, which, you know, welcome to the modern day NFL. But that Dalton Kincaid pick, I, I think is... So fascinating because he is very clearly a pass catching tight end and they know that he's a pass catching tight end and they now have two tight ends in Buffalo, Dawson Knox and Dalton Kincaid. 
And Kincaid is a guy who reminds me very much of Dallas Goddard. Dallas Goddard, for a long time, was the clear-cut number two tight end to Zach Ertz, another Pac-12 guy. And then once Ertz got a little bit older, they traded him away, and he was ready to slide in. That's going to be Dalton Kincaid. He's going to be the number two tight end. He's going to be productive. He's going to be used in the passing game, right? Productive for for tight end standards, by the or, or, or for anyway. I didn't say that right. He's going to be productive by a tight end two standards anyway. That's what I meant to say the first time. See, a dishonest podcast host would have gone back edited that out and made it seem like I got it all right on the first try. I don't roll like that. Just trying to be straight with all of you out there forever and always. So I think Kincaid can be really good. I think by like year three, Dalton Kincaid will be a tight end one in fantasy football. I don't think he's there in year one, maybe not in year two, but by year three, Knox is a little bit older. Kincaid's a little bit more refined, gotten a feel for the NFL game. I That's the first round pick. I have the most, excitement about is what he could become in Buffalo in a pass happy offense, by the way. Uh, But the other thing I want to touch on with the NFL draft here is the 27 draftees by the PAC 12 was the lowest amongst the power five. Now there are some programs and fans of some programs out there who belittle the notion that recruiting is the be all end all. Now, is it entirely indicative of whether or not your program is going to be a winning team in a given year? No. Is it indicative of how high your program can go? Yes. 100%. Absolutely. Because what I notice is that the best conferences and the best teams in the best conferences recruit at a very high level. And a lot of those high level recruits end up turning into first and second round NFL draft picks. That doesn't mean there aren't a plethora of three-star guys or, you know, a couple two-stars or whatever who develop into really good players. I'm pretty sure Devin Lloyd was like a three-star player uh, for for Utah coming out of high school, turned into a first-round pick. Yep, happens all the time. But that number being at 27, being below the Big 12, below the ACC, which are, you know, dozens of players below the Big 10 and the SEC, which are just light years above everybody, speaks to something else the Pac-12 needs to do. I think they've gotten coaching hires mostly right across the board. We'll see about Troy Taylor. We'll see how long of a leash Justin Wilcox gets at Cal. Kenny Dillingham at ASU is interesting. Jed Fish at Arizona. Like, you know, Coach Prime at Colorado. Just go up and down the list, right? I think that's what has kind of allowed for this revitalization of Pac-12 football. But if they're going to take the next step to get back to the college football playoff, they need to recruit at a higher level. They need to put more investment as universities on a conference level into recruiting. And yes, a large part of that is money. Newsflash, it costs a lot of money to win a national championship. Am I, am, am I, am I breaking more news here? I don't think so. So I think the Pac-12 coaching-wise is in a really great spot. But I think recruiting-wise, you look at these numbers and you look at the average value of you know uh, first and second round picks in terms of what they were as high school recruits, it's a lot of blue-chip talent. Four- and five-star players end up being guys who are taken in the first round because they were highly productive players in college. 
again, I don't think I'm reinventing the wheel here, but it is a striking statistic when the Pac-12 is last in total number of NFL players drafted. By the way, Jed Fish uh, responded to a tweet that no Arizona players were drafted. He said, never again. Love the mentality. Absolutely love it. Should be part of the pitch, especially for a guy like Jed Fish at Arizona, right, who comes from the NFL level down to college. Like, that's part of his recruiting pitch to guys is, I can get you to the NFL. I know what it takes. And he's not the first guy to try and make that sort of pitch. But I think the next step for the Pac-12, if they want to get a team back to the college football playoff, is that program has to be able to recruit. I mean, who are the only programs that have been to the college football playoff? Oregon and Washington. And what do those programs have in common? Now, Oregon recruits a lot more and at a higher level than, than Washington does, but the Huskies are capable of bringing in top 20 classes in consecutive years. And nowadays, I think it's easier to get in that range if you are willing as a university and as a community and a football program to put in the dollar figures. If you are willing to do that, that's how you can get more kids to your school. That's how you can get better players. That's how you can bulk up in the trenches. That's how you take that next step on, a, on an individual team level and on a conference level. So you, you know, if you want to hear about any specific NFL player from the Pac-12, by all means, but big picture, I looked at that number and thought, man, there's so many great teams. There's so many great coaches. And I think the recruiting is just not quite there right now, but maybe that'll change. Uh, so Stanford football, wrapping up with the Cardinal here, j just a couple interesting notes. So they had a spring showcase, not a spring game, which, you know, isn't as fun for a guy like me because I can't go back, watch the highlights. I can't go back and, you know, read a bunch of reports about how this guy looked, how that guy looked, this play, you know, it's that it doesn't give as much uh, excitement, but there were a couple of tidbits. I, uh, I, I found that were notable. First of all, I do feel like Stanford could be the worst team in the PAC 12 this year. Absolutely. I like Cal more than Stanford at this point in time. I do think their quarterback battles intriguing, Ari, or Ari or Ari Patu versus Ashton Daniels, a couple of three-star quarterback recruits, holdovers from the, uh, the the previous staff. They'll also have another guy, Miles Jackson, join in, in the fall, but it'll probably be Patu and Daniels. I don't think the most interesting thing about the Stanford quarterback room is the quarterback battle that's taking place as we speak which I'll touch on in a moment. But the, the the other thing I wanted to just note real quickly here is um, Troy Taylor, their new head coach coming over from Sacramento State, had, had an interesting quote when he was being interviewed during the spring showcase. He said, you know, we'll be up tempo, we'll go fast. And I was like, whoa, Stanford? Really? And then he said, quote, we'll huddle as well. And I just, the, the thought of Stanford saying, we'll huddle as well is about as out of place. I'm trying to think of even an, an appropriate metaphor for that. I mean, something of that nature. Uh, <laughs> that's like Stephen Curry saying, yeah, we'll, we'll shoot as well, but we're actually going to be, you know, working on his vertical to get him dunking all the time and playing like John ja Morant. But we'll shoot as well. Like, you know him for one specific thing, a shifting of the philosophy may be welcome, not in Steph Curry's case. Certainly, I think on, on Stanford's front, 
But I just thought it was a funny thing to hear. But the, the, the Troy Taylor experiment, you got to give him time. Stanford is not all in on NIL on the transfer portal. And they're at a competitive disadvantage because of it right now. It, it certainly appears that way. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible to win there. Because I think the value of going and offering a scholarship as the head football coach at Stanford University, I think that still carries a lot of weight. But we won't really know until Taylor's given time. Like, I think in today's world, you got to see major progress in two years. I think at Stanford, you should be given three. So be that as it may, you need players who can help shift the perception, the culture, and the on-field production of your program. And Stanford is after modern-day 2024 four-star quarterback Elijah Brown. Blue chipper, big-time schools after him. Stanford's legitimately in the mix. If the Troy Taylor thing was a really good hire, watch out for that name. Because if that name picks up momentum towards Stanford, the Cardinal could be on their way under Troy Taylor. Appreciate everyone listening. See you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day.